This is the Monday, October 8, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to America's run-up to and participation in World War I. We'll see it through the eyes of former President and Spanish-American war hero Theodore Roosevelt, the old Lion's four sons, Ted Jr., Kermit, Archie, and young Quentin, all suited up in khakis, to fight over there. Leading us through basic training is David Petrusha, author of TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and A Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. We spoke a little bit about Theodore Roosevelt's martial spirit when we interviewed Tim Brady, author of His Father's Son, The Life of General Ted Roosevelt Jr. In David Petrusha's book, we get a fleshed-out picture of the former Rough Rider. He's older now, suffering in the aftermath of his ill-fated Brazilian expedition, blind in one eye from a boxing match, but still scrapping for a fight. Even as he approached 60, T.R. was driven by his own father's lack of service in the Civil War. And just as he'd been in the Spanish-American War, T.R. was unwilling to let others fight while he stayed home with his family. T.R. pressed... I'd even say nagged, his successor Woodrow Wilson, first to prepare for war, and then when the war came, to let him raise a new Rough Rider regiment for the trenches. The result was a clash of titanic personalities and visions that found Roosevelt speaking loudly and demanding the nation start whittling that big stick to ward off threats from the Kaiser. You've seen David Petrusha's work literally everywhere great history is found. He's written or edited a footlocker full of best-selling, award-winning books, including those on pivotal presidential election years 1920, 1932, 1948, and 1960. He's been a guest everywhere from C-SPAN and the History Channel to ESPN and Fox Sports Channel. He's also featured on AMC's Making of the Mob, New York. It's easy to see why he's been called one of the best historians in the United States, one of the greatest political historians of all time, and the undisputed champion of chronicling American presidential campaigns. Visit him online at davidpetrusha.com or follow him on Twitter at dpetrusha. That last name is spelled P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. Okay. Now that America has gotten word of the Lusitania sinking and started debating prospects for war with the Hun, let's join David Petrusha and enlist in TR's Last War. 
I'm joined in New York City on Manhattan Island, the city and the island of Theodore Roosevelt's birth, by David Petrusha, author of TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and A Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. Thank you so much for making the time to meet up with me and talk about TR. No problem. We're sitting here, and on the table between us, we have the book, of course, and we have Tiny TR, who I decided to bring along. I didn't bring my full-size TR bust, but I did bring the small one that I sometimes take pictures of books and post them on my Twitter account, and I just thought it would be cool to have him sitting there, even though we're going to be a little bit stark, I guess you might say, about his feelings and his running for that third term and the things that probably he wished he had do-overs on. Well, it wasn't an easy time for him. He tried to travel the road back to power, and there were no easy routes, and I think he knew that. And so he uh, moves forward carefully, in some ways artlessly, in some ways throwing people overboard, but he knows what he wants to do and what scores he wants to settle, which are, which are numerous. Something, because you never think, until I read the book, I was actually reading it at my desk one day, and I looked over at the little bust and thought, what were you thinking? Which I've never done before. I, <laughs> I usually don't I usually don't look at him that way, but of course he was a human being. He wasn't this man carved into Mount Rushmore at the time. He had flaws. He had things where he was fighting with himself, and I think that's something we don't associate with him. We think he's just a force of nature, a guy who just went and did whatever he did headstrong, but he always was, especially after elections. He did doubt himself or during elections on election night he wasn't sure even in 1904 he'd be reelected he did have conflicts didn't he he was a person we learn here dealing with this issue of war it was tougher than people might think for him what's well, kind of like thinking that john wayne had you know doubts about this <laughs> or that because theodore roosevelt even though he starts out as a sickly kid like a weakling as we used to say it and builds himself up, you know, like Joe Adonis in the yeah. back of the magazines and the comic <laughs> books. And, you know, maybe that's where he got the idea to do it, aside from his father telling him to shape up, kid. Yeah. You can't be a weak kid of your whole life. You've got to make a, you've got to, you've got to heal your body. Uh, the, the amazing, body. Yeah. The amazing <laughs> thing is that, that he has this great brain to go with it. So he is the rough rider and the cowboy and the african explorer and the amazon explorer and the fellow who's mowing down thousands of animals literally on <laughs> in on the african continent so he's capable of all those things he boxing in the white house and doing jujitsu jumping over rock creek park in washington so he's this amazing physical specimen and he is not the guy that you would think would have these doubts. And he is so forceful. You know, I took Panama and let the Congress debate. I'm stretching the Constitution. If the Constitution doesn't say I can't do it, well, then I can do it, <laughs> which is was a novel theory then. Not so novel since, but certainly novel then. And, you know, forcing his will on the Republican Party and almost on the nation. Although he's, he's also riding a wave. It's always a question of, of is the fellow or is the great man riding the wave or creating the wave? And certainly there are currents in the American political system at that point. You know, the old joke, I'm your leader. You will follow me. You know, where's the parade? I'll get ahead of it and I will be the leader. But really the thing is going forward anyway. But. 
I think he is the fellow who is able to transmit all those thoughts and make them respectable because he's not a Eugene V. Debs. He's not a William Jennings Bryan. He's not some prairie populist or some Lower East Side socialist. He's this upper class patrician genius who gives this respectability to all the middle class reformers of the progressive movement. He's the manly guy, you know, the police commissioner and the war hero and all that. So he puts it all together. But as you were saying, yes, he has doubts from the beginning. He suffers from depression. You know, everyone has problems in their life. He has problems when his father dies, when his mother dies, when his wife dies so tragically. He's very depressed when he loses for mayor of New York. We forget he runs for mayor of New York and does so horribly badly. He finishes third, okay? He's bummed out there, you know. It's almost like he's always doing the Sarah Bernhardt farewell tour. He's always, well, this is my last turn in politics. I'm out here. I'm finished. And that, that goes all the way up until, say, well, up to his very death. And into 1916, where, well, if Charles Evans Hughes, he's the, he's elected now. And so I'll, he, he won't listen to me. I won't have anything to say to him. I'm, I'm all out of it. And he's always, always retiring like that. Most famously, of course, on election night 1904, when he says, I won't have another term as president, which is the biggest political mistake he makes and one of the biggest ones that anyone makes. Yeah, you wish, or I wish anyway, when I think of it, that... You could go back and you know, his wife, Edith, wanted to stop him afterwards and said, you sure you wanted to do that? And you wonder if Edith if knew. If, 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 yeah. And she wasn't the political animal. Yeah. I mean, maybe she was. She just never, you know, yeah. she was the silent. <laughs> she was the silent partner, but she was the steady partner. And I think he relied on her. I think she gave him the title of the book, Fear God and Take Your Own Part. So he, hmm. you know, he would take her advice. And it was often, often good advice. It's also ironic. I think the other fellow who makes that statement of I won't be seeking a second term is a guy he constantly excoriates in his speeches in the World War One era is James Buchanan. Hmm. He's always hearkening back to the Civil War era and the run up to it and what is required in terms of preparedness and following the president. Do you follow the president right or wrong? Are you saying if you follow Lincoln, you can't criticize Buchanan or something like that? No, you you criticize the president when he's wrong. And in his uh, estimation, Woodrow Wilson is almost always wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to look at him and Wilson. And you can just you feel for the guy. You feel for Theodore Roosevelt there saying everything that he doesn't like in a person, you know, that no passion, not a tough guy, not going and serving. And this guy is calling the shots almost like Patton. There's that scene in the movie of the movie Patton where he's saying the greatest war of my lifetime. I was born for this. I made my career for this. I've been waiting for it. And Ike's got me sitting on the sidelines. And I, I think of that with TR. I think he wants to. He wants to, he wants to be president when there's a war. Yeah. And ironically, no American serviceman is killed during his presidency. And they, they, this will be pointed out in that 1916 period. And they're, they're actually, his supporters are running newspaper ads and pointing this out. Don't call him the warmonger. Yeah. Hello, where's, you know, look at 
Let's look at the record, as Al Smith would later say. There's no bloodshed here. You know, he's the peacemaker. He wins the Nobel Prize. And look at, even before World War One, April 1917, the declaration of war by the United States, and look how many Americans are being killed under Woodrow Wilson, okay? Either they're on American ships or British ships like the Lusitania, or they're getting killed by the hundreds in Mexico, not only servicemen, but American settlers. There was a big American colony of people down there, like Mitt Romney's father, okay, or, or yeah, you know. Sure. There's a lot of bloodshed and loss of life of Americans in that run-up. We've had problems with the Mexican border for, for a while. It seems like every 100 years or so. Yeah. That deal you know, at least we don't have a Persian go, you know, going south looking for Pancho Villa today. <laughs> Old Rough and Ready, as far back as that with yes. Grant was a young man and all those guys from the Civil War. And speaking of that, there was a lot of those war games observers, things like that. And I often think TR and the Kaiser had met. I don't think it's an accident that we had those years where there wasn't anybody picking a fight with you. When, or with the United States when we had Theodore Roosevelt as president. I can't help but think that the Kaiser would have had a different connection with him, would have had some wariness, would have been afraid of that strength, or at least would have been more respectful. For Roosevelt him. might have stepped in at the beginning of the war because Wilson is profoundly distracted. If an American honest broker could have stepped in and said, okay, boys, just step back count to 10, don't mobilize. That's Belgium. That's not your territory. Don't go there. But Wilson doesn't do that because his first wife had died and he's seriously, talk about depression, he's seriously bummed out. Later on, he's in courtship mode with his second wife very, very quickly after that. But he's distracted. And he, of course, has no experience in foreign policy. He has William Jennings Bryan, who has less experience in foreign policy as his secretary of state. So you don't have the A-team functioning at its best when it could have been. And Roosevelt might have just got on a boat and, and, yeah. and done something dramatic and, and said, OK, I'm calling everyone into The Hague and stop it. Don't do it. Although his reaction to the beginning of World War I is so un-TR-like. Okay, his public reaction anyway, where his public statements are like, well, um, great nations do what they have to do. And Germany did what it had to do. And was there a treaty there? Well, great nations don't always obey their treaties. And so what? And then he's he's also saying, well, we should support the president in his policy of neutrality. And this lasts probably until the Lusitania is sunk. And then the switch goes from measured commentary on the part of the former president to Woodrow Wilson is just a craven coward for sending all these notes <laughs> and not doing anything. Somebody asked me in a, a recent talk I gave on the, on the book, what was TR's opinion of Woodrow Wilson? I said, well, he called him a, a Byzantine logo thief. And I really <laughs> don't know what that means. But he also called him a skunk, and I know what that means. <laughs> yeah, well, you talk about the book, TR's Last War. We're talking about so many things about Theodore Roosevelt. There's so many avenues. It's I likened it before to one of those big beefsteak dinners and how, how much you can chew on in TR's Last War and about this period in his life. You write in the book 
that, quote, writing about Theodore Roosevelt is like scaling a mountain that doubles in elevation every 48 hours. And I get the feeling that people listening will feel that with us here, because look how much you can just jump right in it. There's no there's no pulling anything out. It's all out there for us to look at and for you as a historian. So how did you go about whittling that mountain down to one event, much less something that's as sweeping as the Great War? I think that previous biographers, say full biographers of Teddy Roosevelt, even those who have had like seemingly thousands of pages to work with, who shall remain nameless, are, have done a fine job. But even if you're just doing a good solid single volume of TR, that by the time you get past the Amazon expedition, you're exhausted by him. And, and the book is getting long, and your deadline <laughs> is getting near, et cetera, et cetera. And so you tend to pass over. And, and people who have thought about this part of Theodore Roosevelt's life, if in fact they are admirers, and it's hard to do large books about people you don't admire unless it's a total hatchet job. But with TR, there is this thing which people say is is not his most admirable period because he's also sinking into these attacks on hyphenated Americans where there's this hyper patriotism and worse than that the sheer bloodlust of the man where it is noted that in the 1890s the run-up to the Spanish-American War. He's calling for war with Germany over Samoa, <laughs> yeah. uh, with Britain over, you know, maybe Venezuela. We can take Canada now. This would be a great <laughs> excuse to just seize Canada. And crazy statements like, it would be good for the American people to suffer a bombardment of their coastal <laughs> cities. And then, then they'd appreciate why we need a stronger military. It's like, okay. <laughs> and, and statements to the uh, Naval War College when he's assistant secretary of the Navy, that there, there's no triumph of peace which can match the triumph and glory of war. It's like, uh, no, this is not healthy thinking. He calms down as president, thank God. He, <laughs> I would say he grows into the office at that point. You know, Certainly in terms of not getting us into wars, but then the old T.R., comes back around 1915 and he really wants to get into it now he's operating on two levels here one he really wants to get into it on the other hand he's saying well i really i'm not arguing for war i'm just arguing for preparedness and on this issue he really is right because woodrow wilson has soldiers drilling with broomsticks and the american army it's like 83,000 men or something at, in April 1917, and there are like 35 trained pilots in, in the Army. It's very bad. And then after we get in, we have to fly French planes, uh, use British tanks. We, we are the proto-arsenal of democracy. We've been supplying the Allies from 1914 on, basically. But in terms of having our own military supply, or trained men, we don't have them. And TR has been jumping up and down about this, and he is damn right. The tragedy of the story, the tragedy of the subtitle, is he gets his war, okay? And the price he has to pay for that, 
with his own kith and kin and blood. That's the first line you quote, or I'll quote you rather, of DR's Last War. Theodore Roosevelt's heart lay broken near Chateau Thierry amid a biplane's twisted wreckage. And that's of his last son, his golden boy's favorite, which always makes me feel he must have really loved him if people just say casually he's their favorite. I'm one of three brothers, and my dad makes a point saying nobody's ever their favorite, and I always avoid it. But this is how much he loves him, and the other brothers aren't. They're just as protective of him. He seems to know it, too. They seem to love him, yeah. And like, yeah. And he wants to get over there, and unfortunately, Quentin dies with all that promise, and there's those things that Edith says and that he says about how you can't raise boys to be eagles and expect them to turn out to be sparrows. He goes, he's does it the Roosevelt way. I mean, if you could picture TR up in a plane, which he does do the first yes. president to fly, right? First ex-president. Ex-president. Yeah. And you know, he charges, gets out of formation. It's something we discuss with a fellow who flied with him, an American on the Western front, which is in a book, an interview that's going to air after this one. But that's what happens. It's just, Unfortunately, he loses his life, but all the sons serve. He sends them all over there in his stead. He wishes so much he could go with them. So I think when we listen to those things that he said or we hear them or we read them in TR's Last War, it's important to note that it's not the bloodlust that he just wants to send people over there to die. He thinks it's a duty. It's something that's in him so deeply in his life, isn't it, where he feels we should be going. It's not he wants to bomb from afar. He thinks that's just what a nation's got to do. It sticks with him almost. As I read the book, from when he was a young man, had to make his body, had to show his stuff, live that strenuous life. And if there's a war, we, we got to get in there and start punching somebody. Almost like a bar fight. He said a bloodlust, but it's something that is a part of him that he wants to fight the war. He wants to get over there and he's not going to send anybody else over there to do his work. Yeah, I mean, he, he didn't have to go in, in 1898. I mean, he had, you know, the big family and all that. There was no draft in 1898. He was older, 42. He's old, right? yeah. When yeah. He goes. Well, he's 42, 42 and he becomes sorry, president. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he's, he's maybe 39. Yeah, you know, he's, he's, no, he's no kid. And can't see. No, he's, he's <laughs> well, yeah, that's that right. Point, you know, yeah. whenever he goes on an expedition, he orders like 16 pairs of yeah. eyeglasses <laughs> to, to go with him to Africa. Sew it into his clothes. Edith would sew him in there so he could always have a fresh pair of eyeglasses back in those days. He'll be charging up San Juan Hill. Maybe that's why he said he didn't ask the name of the hills before he charged up them. You know, he couldn't see one from the other if he didn't have his glasses. Yeah. And when he's, I think it's in the 1912 campaign, one of his former Rough Riders, a guy named Jack Greenway. Later goes on to Arizona and and then becomes a prominent fellow there, asks him, you know, T.R., when, when we were in Cuba, it seemed to me that you really wanted the finest thing that you thought would be if you died there. And T.R. like, bam, bangs <laughs> the fist down on the table. Yes, that's exactly right. That was it. Because it was what, yes, because when TR had seen a dead man propped up against a tree or something, it's just, that's, that's the way to go. And, and he feels exactly the same way in World War One. There's the famous story with a couple versions of who he tells it to. I think the exact one is, is to Ella Hugh Root, his former cabinet member. And T.R. is complaining that he had to personally go. He was refused originally by Secretary of War Baker, 
to serve personally in France. He wants to raise a regiment of volunteers, just like he did in Cuba. But the war has changed. He's older. He's blind in one eye now. He's old. He's ex-presidential. He's proven in Cuba, and certainly <laughs> since, that he's, he's seriously insubordinate. <laughs> okay, He's not going to take orders. So he goes to Baker. Baker says no, or writes to Baker. And then he pops up one morning unannounced at the White House. Now, people know he's going to show up because you can't keep a secret in Washington, <laughs> you know. But but he, he travels by night and, and shows up at Alice's, Alice Longworth's house, and then he's raring to go and figuratively knocks on the door and goes in, makes his pitch, and thinks maybe he's convinced Wilson. But Wilson says, no, he's not going to do it. And Wilson is right. Wilson is, of course, not to let him into the war. And T.R. complains afterwards to Elihu Root and says, all I was asking was to go over the France and die. And Root says, did you make that perfectly clear to the president? <laughs> yeah, it might, it might have been really sweetened the deal there. If you want right. To Can you would... put that in writing, Mr. <laughs> Roosevelt? But the price he's going to pay is that his sons will go over and he says over and over again, I would not have it any other way. At one point, he does come to his senses. There are flashes of what we would call normal paternal worry. He writes to Archie, Archibald, and says, you know, you don't have to stay in combat the whole war. I don't know if you get a choice. <laughs> I don't remember my father telling me he had this choice, okay? <laughs> but TR is writing to Archibald, Archie, and saying, you don't have to stay in, the whole, in combat the whole war, you know. A month, which is about how long TR was in combat, <laughs> that's enough to get your record in. And then go back, go back and serve with Pershing's office. So he has that flash of sort of normality, yeah. okay? Mortality, respecting yes. the mortality, not having contempt right. for it. Right, but Archie is wounded so badly oh, yeah. in France. His knee is hit, and then his arm and his uh, nerves are shattered. They have to grow back. He's 100% disabled as the army classifies wounds in that war. By Armistice Day, he's back in the States, and he's held together by scotch tape. He's seriously depressed at this point, too. Ted Jr. is wounded and gassed in France later on. Kermit comes out unscathed. He serves with the British Army. Quentin nearly served with the Canadian Air Force, but he went into the American Air Force, trained at Mineola. He commuted. He commuted from home. Yeah, he was a brown bagger to the Army. Imagine on Long Island, just, oh, hey, I'm flying. Flew over the house, didn't he? He did Sagamore fly Island. over the house, and then TR would stand on the porch and wave <laughs> to him, and Quentin would drop flowers, you know, practicing like bombing, you know, the Germans, <laughs> but, but dropping bouquets of flowers on Sagamore Hill. But with Quentin, he goes over and he trains. And Kermit, Kermit, as I was saying, serves with the British in the Middle East, meets Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, he's a great linguist, Kermit is. You know, they're all smarter than hell. Yeah. And, and they're all braver than hell. So Kermit comes upon a, a group of, of Turks, and he's, he's wandering off by himself, and he sees all these Turks. He's, like, outnumbered who knows how many to one and starts waving his swagger stick at them because he doesn't have a pistol with him. But he's, he's with the British Army, so he has a swagger stick and, and tells you boys it better you know, surrender now if you know what's good for you. And I think they know how the war is going to end at this point. So they all do surrender, and he's transferred over to France. Quentin... 
he's in France for 11 months before he goes seriously into aerial combat. He probably shouldn't be in the army at all. He's 20 years old. He could have waited. He was a sophomore at Harvard. His vision was as bad as his father's. So he had to have someone sneak in to the induction center and memorize the eye chart for him. And then it's like, E, you know, and on (laughs) from there. But also he had gone on his own little expedition in 1913 to the Grand Canyon and a pack horse had fallen on him, seriously wrecking his back. So God knows how he could maneuver in the cockpit of one of these, these planes or what he could see over his glasses with goggles etc etc so he has to learn how to fire through him through the propellers and the machine guns and how to fly in formation it takes a while and it takes a while for us to get a sufficient amount of planes into the air our own squadrons when he goes out the first time he's in real aerial combat aside from being fired at by some ground ack he gets a kill the first time out his mother and his family they're all thrilled about this But then he goes out three or four days later on Bastille Day, July 1914, and two bullets right to the forehead. The plane goes down, and is he alive, dead, captured, wounded? He lost two planes in training and walked away. But the people at home, all they know that the plane is down. They don't know about the two bullets to his skull. And they are left with this uncertainty. There's a Associated Press reporter who comes to Sagamore Hill one day, knocks on TR's door and says, I have this telegram here. And it says, watch Sagamore Hill for, and the rest is censored. TR knows that's bad news from France. Rules out the other three sons, says it's got to be Quentin, and says, whatever you do, do not tell Mrs. Roosevelt. But word comes in after that, and they both try to buck each other up. And Edith may be, in fact, a little stronger about that. She says, I have the good childhood memories, and T.R. only has the thoughts of what might have been for Quentin and how it has all been dashed. So it is it is actually easier for me. And, you know, T.R. keeps the stiff upper lip, Quentin was raised in the White House, two years, four years old. He was growing up in the White House. So he was in the public eye his whole life, really. He was America's golden boy, too. And one of the famous incidents is when Archie takes sick and Quentin puts this little Shetland pony, miniature pony, Algonquin, into the White House, up the elevator and into Archie's bedroom to cheer him up. And, you know, that makes all the press and, you know, everyone eats that up. But after... T.R. gets the news. He walks down alone into the stables at Sagamore Hill and finds Quentin's old pony and puts his arms around that horse and weeps and weeps and weeps. He raised them to be eagles, but he always thought they'd come home to roost, so to speak. And he dreams of them being adults. And I think as a father... He had his own father as a model. He wished his father was there for him when he, especially at that moment, he takes over the presidency from McKinley's assassination. And in fact, they bring yellow flowers, yellow roses out. And he said, that was father's flower. And that's an omen, I think, that he's with me or he thinks of his father there with him at that moment. It was so important. 
I know with my own father, he would say, you can't be friends with your kids when they get older. Like that's the mother's time, a boy. Anyway, it's the, it's the, the mother's time. She is the, the soft one. And, you know, he said, you, when the kids are older, okay, I'm going to be friends with you. But for when you're young, you have to be the father. You can't laugh at the thing that like bringing the pony up in the elevator. TR would, of course, because as Edith said, she had six children, not just five because right. she counted him. But I saw that with him as I'm reading TR's last war, where he thinks, he was going to come home and we were going to sit around the fire at Sagamore Hill or down Long Island Sound and trade war stories. And for instance, he says with Ted Jr., my war was a bow and arrow affair compared to Ted's. And this is real war over there. I mean, he's he recruits some NYPD horses. I learned that in TR's last war where he to go over there with him if he's going to have this new Rough Rider regiment, even though a cavalry charge is horribly out of date by this point. Right. Eastern front, but yeah. not Western. <laughs> yeah, true. Even when guys are dying there in the Spanish-American War, again, like George S. Patton going in there and saying, this is a noble thing. This is, well, this is great. You're going to get to go and you've died in battle. You've given the ultimate sacrifice. He believes it and it's what he wants. He wants to die in the saddle. Well, with his when he's on. writing to Secretary of War Baker to get permission to, to launch this regiment division, this scheme, he points out with great pride that it was his regiment that took the highest number of casualties <laughs> in the entire campaign. <laughs> This is not a selling point, <laughs> particularly when Baker's own brother was joining up with TR and Baker's wondering, I don't want to get my brother killed under this, this character. You know, he's brave, but, you know, there is the story of there's some fellow, you know, kind of crouching down as they're preparing to charge the Spanish in Cuba. And he says, get up, man. If I could, if I could be here on this horse, you could stand up. And the guy stands up and immediately a bullet goes through his head. And this doesn't seem to phase Roosevelt at all. It's horrible to laugh, but it's pretty funny when you read about it. And this is why what you were saying, why people are attracted to those early stories, why we read and reread so much about them. I've read a couple dozen books about TR in my office. I have all of his printed letters and some old green volumes that are falling apart, really almost. And you focus on those things. You focus on his accomplishments, his amazing rise, the fact that he's the first vice president to take over for a president that's died in office and win election in his own right. You have to go all the way back to Martin Van Buren just to get one elected after right. his president, right? I mean, Boss Platt was right. It's a dead end job. Yeah. Funeral for him. Yeah. Put him in. Watch him take the veil, as he puts it. Yeah. Right. He says he's going to get him the heck out of New York, his reforming ways. And, and out of the public eye. And, you know, after four years, who's going to, you know, Spanish-American War, so what? Yeah. We're on to other things. He's thinking of going back to law school when he's the vice president. He's saying, oh, gosh, why did I take this? This is so boring. It's hard to keep your star up or something like that, he says, for four years. And he's how he's going to keep himself before the public eye and people to remember right. him. You can't go rogue as vice yeah. president. And particularly before a primary system. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, which is something that comes back to haunt them in 1912. Yeah. Who controls it? Well, now the in our time, we see that with the superdelegates last time on the Democratic Party side. We're swinging back and right, forth yeah. as to how we're going to do it. And what you, what you think is a great idea then is not such a great idea now. Be, and, and in 1912, the delegate system that, that Roosevelt set up to nominate Taft in 1908 is the same thing that nominates 
Taft in 1912. And all of a sudden, that's the most horrible system in the world. <laughs> Undemocratic. That's right. Hear him now. Will of the people must be paramount. David McCullough said about Adams, it reminded me of that when you said that people stop, they get exhausted by Theodore Roosevelt's. And so the book, TR's Last War, never brought anybody's attention to that period. David McCullough, when he wrote his biography on John Adams, said, I couldn't say that he just went back to Braintree, Massachusetts, and nothing happened for 20 years and he died. And I thought that with TR and the World War I period, because we look away so much so quickly from the Great War. That's why this centennial year, I've tried to do a bunch of books on it. We want to get to World War II. We want to think of TR as the young man, as the Rough Riders. We want those great anecdotes like when he's at that party before he goes off to Cuba. I think he's already enlisted. And he says, it's time to drive the European flag from North America. We'll get them out of the Western Hemisphere. And it's an ambassador, I believe, that says to him, what's wrong with Canada? Roosevelt, <laughs> like, chill out for a minute. Those are all such great anecdotes. We never look at this. Not a book like this, which, by the way, is not a massive, thick tome if people are thinking that it is. I, how many pages is it? I'm flipping it oh, open. 381 or something. Yeah. My uh, editors told me to be a conservationist and not kill so many trees as in my previous books. <laughs> TR would like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No Christmas tree he in the White House. Yeah, that's right. correct. Yeah. And Gifford Pinchot, yeah. his head forester, said, uh, like you said, chill out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right to have one tree. What was it about you that made you say you were going to get on your horse and you were going to go and look at this period in his life that had been overlooked? Well, I was actually thinking about doing... John Milton Cooper had done The Warrior and the Priest, and maybe to revisit Wilson versus TR. And then I came to focusing on this period. It's it's really a trial and error process of trying to come up with the uh, concepts for these books. And you think about this or that, but when you see the 1916 election, and you know, people have said that, oh, the Republican convention of that year was so boring. What the hell are you talking about? I mean, certainly <laughs> it was listless. People weren't sure what they were going to do. But the machinations with TR at their core, consider this, listeners out there in podcast land, you had three major parties then, or sort of the vestige of the third, and you have two of these meetings simultaneously in one city, a few blocks apart. They, they have to get back together again, the Republicans and the progressives. How are you going to do it? This is a very awkward dance, and TR doesn't quite know. No one is quite sure how to do it because you can't nominate some hidebound conservative and and have the progressives come back and you can't nominate oh any anyone who's too progressive because the conservatives have really taken the party back they've got their hands back on on all the party machinery they've won a lot of primaries and state conventions in 1914 the people speak in 1914 and they they're saying to hell with the republican progressives so tr has a very bad hand to play and he's got to figure out how to get nominated he makes the statement over and over again the american public will take me but only if they are in a heroic mood okay <laughs> don't take me okay but he, what he's really doing is whispering don't take me unless you're in a heroic <laughs> mood in other words he wants it bad and he's 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 again saying 
well, I'm not running, I am running, whatever. And the Republicans, he has really very little support in the Republican convention. The progressives want to nominate him instantly and force the Republicans' hand. He's holding them back. He's holding them back, and he's become increasingly wary of his more activist, radical, progressive allies. He's calling them, you know, like maniacs and crackpots all the time. So he's very down on them. And what he does is at the end of the game, he throws them over. He really uses them. And you see people like his great supporter, the newspaper editor, William Allen White, disgusted at the end of the process where TR throws the progressives over and almost, no, not almost, does really insult them with his suggestion that the progressives should nominate Henry Cabot Lodge as their candidate. I mean, people are like throwing you know, TR buttons to the ground and, and cursing him. These people who, who had really been for him absolutely totally. Or Ida Tarbell is writing a newspaper report about how badly used these, these progressive people were. And, and what the parties come together on is the nomination of Charles Evans Hughes, who is a logical, who is the logical candidate, but he has an incredibly difficult job to do. One, TR does not like him at all. It's a question, well, there's a lot of questions. One, there's been some issues over patronage, and TR had viciously sunk Charles Evans Hughes' presidential chances in 1912. What he does is he plays the, you know how all the bad, bad stories come out on Friday or how a story, you know, a story can be big footed by it. We're going to put out a bigger story to knock out your story off the front page. Okay. Wag the dog. So he wags the dog domestically because Charles Evans Hughes is going to give basically the de facto kickoff of his presidential campaign and TR delivers a message to Congress which is the most radical anti-capitalist, anti-big business speech. And it's just breathing fire in every paragraph. And it knocks Charles Seven Shoes off the front page. And people say, gee, people said to him, well, what'd you do that for? He says, well, Hughes is going to play the game. He's going to have to know the rules, isn't he? <laughs> so, uh, so he doesn't like Hughes. And Hughes also has to bring the two party, like anyone else, you know, you've got to thread the needle. Are you going to the left? Are you going to the right? But most of all, Woodrow Wilson is running on peace and prosperity. He's got peace and prosperity. You know, he kept us out of war and being out of war, we've been supplying all those raw materials and manufactured goods to the allies and we're making money and working overtime, you know, hand over fist in America. So it's a tough job. One of the interesting things about that convention is we've got the tapes, so to speak, because his big money man, George W. Perkins, and there's a lot of progressive resistance to Perkins because he's a he's a Morgan man. He's a Wall Street man. And they they really distrust the Wall Street alliance with T.R., and Perkins, he installs a private line, very expensive. I think it costs like $9,000, $9,000 back then <laughs> for Perkins to be in constant contact with TR back at Sagamore Hill. And not only does he have this line installed, but he's got a stenographer taking all the notes. 
So there's there's actual transcripts of, of what the you know we don't have to count on some newspaper account or some secondhand memoir. We know exactly what T.R. was saying, and at one point T.R. says to Ted Jr. when Ted is talking about maybe him taking the progressive nomination, and T.R. says no, that was never in the cards. But he's been playing the progressives really for suckers on this. You're enjoying my bully chat with David Petrusha. Is that a good one? That's a good one. <laughs> okay. You got that right. It's not easy. About but his... are we saying Roosevelt or Roosevelt? <laughs> Have we been getting my name right? <laughs> well, that's why I just say my name any old way. You're enjoying my chat with David Petrusha about his book, TR's Last War. Theodore Roosevelt, the Roosevelt. Great, <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and A Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. Visit him online at dpiatrusha.com. dpiatrusha on Twitter. That's D-P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. So you have T-R right there in your name. So That's you're true. destined to write T-R's Holy last cow. War. I'm looking at the back of your book here, and Richard Norton Smith, author of On His Own Terms, A Life of... Nelson Rockefeller says David Petrusha has a gift for making the past both real and dramatically gripping. We've made clear here, I think, and also told listeners just how gripping the story is, what a great story it is, what a great character TR is as a human being. Roosevelt gets accused of sedition, in fact, for this fiery passion he has, all this criticism of Woodrow Wilson's war effort or lack of war effort, lack of effort to prepare a hundred years later, you sometimes see people wearing T-shirts with that Roosevelt quote defending the right to criticize a president in wartime. I'm seeing it more and more now. Yeah, yeah. you have it now. And you can, if you wear it the next eight years, it's going to switch. You're going to see other people wearing it. You're going to see people who liked it before tell you to take it off, depending on who's recyclable. In there. Yeah, so this depends. Part of TR's last war is his refusal to be silenced, and I do love that. I'm big on the free speech business. There's a reason Larry Flint had to go and fight it at the Supreme Court. We need it for Hustler. We don't need it for Home and Garden Magazine. So we need it for things that is offensive speech, offensive political speech specifically, is what it's in the Bill of Rights for. With that said, do you think readers will be surprised when they see in TR's last war just how much TR savaged his successor? Yes, there's a great speech in the run-up to, uh, I think, the 1916 mid-years, where he gets really ghoulish, almost, talking about how the dead on the sunken ships are crying <laughs> out against a Wilson at Shadow Lawn, his home in New Jersey, or his, you know, his rented home, and that the mothers and the children and the blood oozing out of their dead bodies. It's really like it's it's really pretty ghastly and what actually amazed me more was you know we think of Woodrow Wilson as being such a prickly guy and his ability to not hit back not punch down at TR is amazing his restraint now maybe TR would say it's the same sort of thing which keeps us from being forceful against the Kaiser at such. It's just a <laughs> cowardly yellow streak of a man, you know, too proud to fight. That's what you he know. said, right? Yeah, Jimmy Wilson. yeah. Too Wilson, proud to fight. Yeah. Wilson did, which of course is an, an interesting story. And that's right. That that's when TR 
is that's when the Lusitania is sunk. That's when TR is being sued for libel by the Republican boss of of New York and has all these reporters around him in Syracuse. And so it's like it's like he can really reach out to the media at that point. But Wilson, Wilson is like seriously distracted because he's courting his second wife and he's seen her that morning before he goes up to Philadelphia to address a large number of immigrants, many of them German. And he uses that phrase and then the blowback comes like he said, what? And TR is like, that is the most, you know, horrible statement ever, etc. <laughs> He's just beyond himself. And Wilson is writing to his beloved did I say that? I don't remember saying. <laughs> All I remember was our sweet farewell that morning. It's like, get a room. <laughs> you don't think of Woodrow Wilson as a passionate guy. Well, but he's I guess, a passionate uh, guy. Yeah. He really is. And of course, they had the sort of hushed up or the rumors, the rumors of the affair with this Mrs. Peck. He was Peck's bad boy. Okay. <laughs> More than a peck on the cheek. Going he would on. see this woman on vacation. He would be vacation alone, like in the Bahamas. And they, they carried on a, a fairly lengthy conversation and met personally. And, you know, who knows what, although there's, there's a letter from Woodrow Wilson to Edith, the second wife, about this and saying, uh, you know, you read between the lines and it doesn't sound good. It's like, forgive me for what I have done. Can you ever, et cetera. It's like, oh, what did, what did you do? But yes, the, so the TR Woodrow Wilson thing is really a breach which is never, never healed. But when TR goes to the White House to talk to Woodrow Wilson and Wilson is, is asked afterwards by his secretary, well, what you, what'd you think of the meeting? Well, yeah, what'd you think of that meeting? And Wilson is... You know, he's just so lovable. He's a great big boy. It's, it's really hard to dislike him. So there's that TR charm, which, you know, with all the energy about him, he was like this, you know, this force field around him. And he had this great memory. So, you know, you're trying to get into his brain and see what made him so popular. Some of his correspondence, you see a vein of flattery to other people. You know, he's, he's like very complimentary people. And, and there's the politician at work. At other times, he will just snap at people and be, you know, very harsh as well. But because he has this great memory, if I've seen you five years before and I remember something that you've said about your family or some book you read, you're going to be impressed and flattered that he remembered me and it's, there's going to be a bond. And TR has this amazing memory where he can remember everything. Yeah. People okay. can't even remember who the heck he met. Like, there's a story like that after McKinley gets assassinated. He's in the car, I believe, or on the train, and he sees a man and he says, Oh, hi. He says hello to him. And everyone says, How the heck do you know that guy? And yeah. there's just no record of how he would have met wherever it was, probably met him when he was governor or something like that. But he would remember you. And, and that's what made that bond with him. You're right. Uh, Oswald Garrison Villard a very progressive first he was an old school conservative and then a progressive and writes about how he seduces the press and how tr one day gave out a story here's a story and and we're we're gonna say this 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 and this and you'll print that 
And then the next day you will print my story <laughs> denying it. And they printed both. He says, with his charm, because he could remember, you know, if your father fought in the Crimean War or this was your favorite flower or beer, you know, he could he could talk about that and he seduced the press like nobody else. So that's a powerful weapon for a politician to have. Yeah, there's nothing worse than not being remembered also. Like I know when I was working in TV and I would have various guests and somebody called me one day and he said his name and you don't remember who I am, which I didn't like particularly because I did remember because yeah. I don't have a TR memory, but I do have a very good memory for things I read. One reason I can read TR's Last War and have things stick with me. But I said, I remember who you are. You did this. I could see where that was trying to put me on my back foot because you feel bad if you don't remember. Gosh, why do I know that guy? What's that woman's name? Whatever like that. And he and because it's valuable to us as humans to know you held a little part of Theodore Roosevelt's brain would be great for you. So I, I, I have a ghastly memory for faces. I mean, it's really almost a uh, amnesia for faces. And there's a there's a word for this. It's not as bad as something clinical, but it's not good. It's a real disadvantage for me. How I ever won election to office and beat an 18-year <laughs> incumbent, I don't know. But I managed to, to, after getting past the initial blank stare of meeting people again, yeah. uh, was able to convince them that I was on the right track. But it's I don't <laughs> recommend it. I recommend the TR way. There's There's a story about somebody said, you know, I thought I had the way of something there would I could discuss something with him that he wouldn't know about. So I sat down with him and I mentioned something about Icelandic literature. And <laughs> for a brief while he had that look that I usually have about someone's face. And then he came out with all this stuff about Icelandic literature. I mean he just knew everything about everything. And so he was this great force of nature. There's a, a woman who later became a screenwriter, worked with him at the Metropolitan, not museum, but magazine, and described what it was like. He would get groups of visitors coming in, and she said how absolutely dumbstruck they were at meeting him, and just just a glow almost. And when they were going, I mean, it was just this this mystical Wagnerian moment. <laughs> they could not bear to, to depart from the godlike creature. She liked him and all that, but seeing the effect he had on people, which he did. Still does. He Man, still this does. This is why you're still having books be published and put on the shelf. That's, that's, that's why, well, there is another reason why he's on Mount Rushmore. He's on Mount Rushmore because one of his political allies in the progressive party in connecticut was a guy named gutson borglum okay who at the drop of his hat would propose creating some gigantic statue of theodore <laughs> roosevelt after the 1916 convention he's one of those guys who feels betrayed he's turning his portrait to the wall at that point but then he comes back and at tr's death he wants to put this gigantic equestrian statue or relief of Theodore Roosevelt on the Palisades facing New York. Wow. <laughs> Imagine seeing TR on horseback every time you're driving across the George Washington Bridge. Uh, I love or that because I used to go across that bridge every day. That's not far from where yeah. I grew up. But that is one reason he's one of the big four, but I think he would be anyway. And it is remarkable that he does it without the, well, you know, 
Jefferson doesn't do it with the big war either. You know, he's up there, yeah, and and he's still big. I but mean, adding half the country helped. That yeah. really helped, <laughs> and the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. But you, even though T.R. would not believe it, you do not need a war in your presidency. <laughs> that really has not helped Woodrow Wilson any. Yeah, you know, that has not prevented Woodrow Wilson from becoming a pariah among both the left and the right. Yeah, nor Lyndon Johnson. And that was part of the thing I wanted to mention about T.R. and him speaking his mind. Wilson is throwing people in jail. I mean, he deports Emma Goldman. She's always my go-to example because if anybody was going to deport her, first of all, she was a citizen through her marriage, but they managed to weasel it out and, and Wilson throws her out of the country. But if ever there was somebody who was going to get rid of this woman, it would have been the guy who takes over the White House after a man who says he's inspired by her and anarchism just shot your predecessor. And yet Theodore Roosevelt doesn't, as much as they go after anarchists, he doesn't throw her out. He doesn't start this wholesale, almost like FDR, that, that Wilson does start imprisoning people and opening mail and reading things and throwing people out of the country. He is in a unique position as a former president where nobody's going to throw him in jail for speaking no, his mind. No, there, there are discussions in the cabinet, and one of the chapters is headed, why isn't Roosevelt in jail? Because he's criticizing the government so badly and, you know, if the measure is don't criticize the government in terms of war and we're throwing Debs in jail and we're deporting people. On the other hand, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., Ted Jr., he's in the New York State Assembly when they expel the five socialists, okay, after the war from the New York State Assembly. And he, he protests against that. Whether TR would have gotten that point, I don't know. During the war, I mean, the rhetoric is pretty harsh and there's a case where a Philharmonic Orchestra, Symphonic Orchestra conductor. I think his name is Muck, Carl Muck. There's a mix-up, and he doesn't play the national anthem before a concert. And TR is just livid and, like, throw him in jail. And he actually, he was thrown in jail. He was interned. Well, he was a German. No, he wasn't a German. He was a Swiss <laughs> citizen, and he was thrown in jail. An accent. Oh, bad yeah, news. he had that accent. And yeah. No one was stepping up for the Germans at that point. T.R. would say, if you had the right attitude, if you really had become American in attitude, it didn't matter if you were German or Irish or any of those, you know, not quite Nordic peoples. There are also these things which happen in those years, which is one reason why I think people don't go near it and say that these are not his most admirable years. For example, he goes ballistic during the uh, after effects of the trial of Tom Moody. There's a preparedness parade in San Francisco. A bomb goes off. A lot of people are killed in, I think, 1916. Moody is arrested. He's basically railroaded, and he's let loose in the 1930s finally but Woodrow Wilson sends a young lawyer to investigate this lawyer had been a friend of TR and TR says you know this is terrible these anarchists you're defending the Bolsheviks and the anarchists this is it just you're harming the United States of America and also this investigation you've got down about the miners being arrested in Bisbee Arizona where thousands of miners were put on boxcars in the middle of the summer and taken out in the desert no due process at all by Jack Greenway the fellow who TR had said in the Spanish-American War, yes, that is the best way to die. In battle, that is just the cat's pajamas. 
<laughs> not in those words. He yeah. doesn't say that, but you should not criticize Jack. Jack Greenway had said, this process is great, and TR is defending these two things. And the lawyer he is writing to and fumigating against is a young guy named Felix Frankfurter. Huh. Uh, Ends up on the Supreme Court. Right. So he is really becoming hyper-nationalist hyper and, and hyper-anti-radical at that point. He does temper... Well, on racial matters, he's he's up and down all over the lot. You know, he's criticizing the black soldiers who are fighting at San Juan Hill. He says they, you know, unless you've got white officers, they're they're just not very good. And meanwhile, they're the ones who go with him. The Buffalo yeah, soldiers, yeah. the regulars, won't even follow. But his he ass he, he disses them, and then he has know, then he has Booker T. Washington in the White House, and then there's Brownsville. And then the Taft delegates from the South, the black delegates from the South vote for Taft. And it's like, no, we're not having any black delegates from the South at the progressive uh, convention. I mean, they're just banned. But there is a big race riot in East St. Louis, Missouri, which is kind of like a strike breaker thing. The Democrat administration, and even Wilson is alluding to the fact that the Republicans are colonizing okay, Illinois with black votes, they're bringing in all these illegal voters, vote fraud, et cetera, et cetera. Really crazy statements of, uh, in terms of number and what the Republicans are up to. And as part of that, and it's a strike breaker thing too, there's a white rampage against the blacks in East St. Louis, very ugly. And TR ends up on a stage at Carnegie Hall to celebrate the new Democratic, not Bolshevik, the first Russian Revolution, He's on a stage with President of the American Federation of Labor, Samuel L. Gompers. And Gompers has sort of not spoken out on this issue, involved sort of labor and all that. And TR is just livid about this and charges across the stage and almost physically attacks the president of the American Federation of Labor, who was like five foot three or something, and he does two, touch him. Even he touches, he, he touches him. He grabs him and yeah. and he assaults him. Damn it! <laughs> and you know they're asking, "Did you do anything to him afterwards?" He says, "Oh no, but I wish I had. I'll get him. Where is he?" It's like, oh my god, what's he up to here? Is he genuinely? I mean, he does not feel that there's any right to lynch, or he always feels that there is a question of. You know, if a black man can legitimately rise, give him a shot. He is also friends with Madison Grant, the author of the one of the seminal racist works, The Passing of the Great Race. Okay? And not only is he an old friend of his, they're, they're fellow conservationists, by the way. Okay? That's the connection originally with them. He blurbs the book. Theodore Roosevelt blurbs one of the great racist books of the 20th century, uh, which I think was praised by the Nazis later on. It precedes the Nazis because it precedes the end of the war. But on the other hand, he writes to Grant because Grant has made some remark about the quality of soldiers in the American army and only the, uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxon types are any good. And these Irish and Germans and such are just Slavs or whatever, just bums. And T.R. says, my boy has served with the O'Sullivans and the Schmitz and whoever, and they're just as good soldiers as any native-born American. You don't know what you're talking about. So he, he will blow hot and cold on things that he's not blowing completely hot on all the time. Well, blowing is the word. He 
it's a stream of consciousness where he just thinks out loud and says anything. And if you've ever watched TV with me and you watch a cable news or you watch a debate or you watch it with anybody who has an interest in a passion or sports or anything, he is like that where he's yeah. just, he, as I'm reading TR's last war, he's yelling and he's saying things and saying, oh, we should just throw him out and we should really get Wilson. And he doesn't have a Twitter feed, but he's, he he's still, yeah, but he he's still just saying whatever the heck he thinks of. And at the moment, and then you, what do you do? I guess you look at the deeds of what he does when push comes to shove, even though he says all of these things that are really offensive to modern ears. And as you say, maybe discouraged some previous historians from tackling this period even just the general language of the time, the names that they used for people, talking about the American race. Well, the word race, the way that they used it was different than ours. So I can see where not only that, but also him being kind of wishy-washy here, him violating that rule that he taught his sons in boxing. He would always tell them, don't fight at all if you can possibly honorably avoid it. But if you do have to hit, hit hard, hit hard as you can. Throw your Sunday punch, he called it, you know, as hard right. as you can. Get it over with. And the biggest and, sin and is hitting soft. And Yeah, don't let it because that guy will come back and get you. Early on in the book, I quote Elihu Root, who was his Secretary of War and Secretary of State. and I think T.R. probably preferred Root as his successor, but Root was kind of old and really too conservative for the progressive era. And they are close to each other. They've known each other for a long time. T.R. gets in trouble when he's running for governor of New York because Boss Platt, he's, he's running with the support of the boss, okay? Because the boss has a Republican candidate and incumbent who's a dog. I mean, he's going to lose. There's some some scandals going on, and he's not going to win. So he's got to replace this guy with the, the new fresh face front man of the machine who is going to be Theodore Roosevelt, a very unreliable front man because he's going to do whatever he wants. So, but, so the machine or the incumbent governor with the support of Tammany comes up with a letter that Theodore Roosevelt has written that I am not and this is for the purpose of taxes, I am not a resident of Sagamore Hill or the city of New York or the state of New York. I am a resident of Washington, D.C. because he's undersecretary of the Navy when he writes this and he's trying to get out of paying taxes. Oh, <laughs> and it's like, okay, how do we explain that one? We get a smart lawyer named Elihu Root to bamboozle <laughs> the convention on this, and he does. So they've known each other a long time, and Root says later on, because he supports Taft in 1912, and TR is just, <laughs> and he says, you know, TR, I think, believes everything he says when he says it. But he uses these ideas and he, he will grab anything like a chair leg or a club and <laughs> the this, whole this, chair, and this, the whole chair, the, you know, the dinette set to, to go after you or because, you because he really, <laughs> you know, he plays to win. And it's not just the wars of guns and hand grenades and artillery. It's of ideas and politics and words. I mean, he's not pacifistic. That was something also in that 1898 election for governor where 
he was also flirting with the independent party then just as he does in 1916 right and says well i'm gonna run with them and then if the republicans come along well oh, uh, yeah. i don't need he, your line he throws them overboard yeah. too Woodrow Wilson is more famous for throwing people overboard, like his his friends at. Is that a Lusitania Prince, joke? Princeton. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, you know he throw he, he uh, abandons he abandons his allies at Princeton University or or his his the fellow who's running the newspaper and puts uh, the magazine about Woodrow Wilson vote must be president of the United States on every issue and and. You know, he will toss people overboard over and over again. But so will Theodore Roosevelt and the often surprisingly progressives. On one of the great progressive issues of that time, he's profoundly wishy-washy. He just doesn't seem to care about women's suffrage. Even when he supports it, he really doesn't care. But there's a great letter in the book from him to Carrie Chapman Cap, I believe, in the run-up to the 1916 conventions where She's asking his position on women's suffrage, and he's made his position known. He's switched, okay, whether he cares about it or not, but he's switched. He's on the record, and his his response to her is just fuming for, for a guy who would be so responsive to manners and women and supporting women. I mean, he's just ripping her her ignorance you know go to this letter here you know and if you can't read it i don't know what you can do with it it's it's really harsh also what he does with jane adams jane adams had helped nominate him or i think the seconding speech or maybe the actual nominating speech in 1912 at the progressive convention which made history she was the great reformer of the settlements in chicago social worker and then when the war comes and she joins with people like Henry Ford to oppose the war and try to make peace, well, then it's poor, bleeding Jane and, and you know, she's just cut off that way. You didn't really have a setting for agree to disagree with people. Well, no, no. <laughs> He's pretty intense. Although it's, it's kind of weird, though. He had gotten really off-kilter with Senator Warren Harding of Ohio, who ran the Marion Star, and wrote scathing, scathing critiques of Roosevelt's personality when Taft and Roosevelt were going at it. And in 1916, there's a thought that Harding could have been a dark horse surprise nominee by the Republicans, which would have been hard for the progressives to swallow because of because he had been so harsh with Roosevelt. And one of the things which is interesting in the book is or thousands of things which are interesting. In the book. <laughs> Everything is Everything interesting. Everything is interesting. But that he gives the keynote speech. He's really, I mean, despite what H.L. Mencken says, he's really a pretty good speaker. He makes more money as a speaker at the Chautauqua Circuit than as editor of this podunk newspaper. Harding. Yeah, Harding. He's not a bad speaker. He gives the worst speech of his career, you know, sort of like Clinton. Remember Clinton's speech, which yeah. just went on and on. Harding's was worse. Everyone hates it, and it kills whatever chance he has of being nominated. <laughs> we don't night. want to listen to that for four no, years. No, this, this, <laughs> no. Over, the Times famously writes, he will never be president. You can forget this guy's name. He will <laughs> never be president. Wrong, as John McLaughlin would say. But Harding and Roosevelt really Kiss and make up after 1916. Amazing thing I learned in TR's last Yeah. Month. Talk about an odd couple. They're meeting, they're <laughs> corresponding. 
when some guy makes a re- remark about TR going off and getting killed in France, and and yeah, yeah, my wife says, what a great idea. And this guy's writing to Harding, and Harding says, don't you criticize his patriotism or his value to this country, okay? And I'm not easily seduced by him. <laughs> Harding is always yeah, easily seduced, <laughs> but it's like, you know, don't think I've been seduced by this guy, but, yeah. you know, we... We, we know where we stand on different things. We, we're, we're moving closer. I think that had Roosevelt been nominated in 1920, you might very well have seen a Roosevelt-Harding ticket. And then it would have been Amazing. a race as to who dies first. Yeah, that's something. Because here's Theodore Roosevelt, a guy who didn't even believe in second marriages. He berates himself for getting remarried when his yes. first wife dies. Yes. That's like having a mistress in Albany and my wife and family in Oyster Bay. It's just as bad. I'm against second marriages. He's writing his sister. And here's Harding, who, my gosh, they hear giggling behind a house. And there he is spraying the garden hose on some women in the wet T-shirts. And, you know, he's, <laughs> he's just a guy who's. Well, you know, they have found the, you know, they ran the DNA. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is proof. Proven about Harding having fathered a illegitimate daughter, etc., etc. At least one, and that's something where T.R. You never would think that he would be near a guy like that, but I think it says something about him that he's not a great judge of people. He doesn't have a great sense of whatever they said, like when he was police commissioner and that guy comes to him, he wants to fire him. He's a corrupt cop. And he says, well, these are my 12 kids. And TR starts misting up. Okay, I'll give you another chance. And it turns out they said, you know, he doesn't have any kids. He's got <laughs> those street urchins off the street. I think maybe that that was part of that, that he was so out there that he took a lot that people told him. He doesn't end up like Nixon, which saved him from his friend or Grant or anything. But I always felt like he was somebody that needed to slow down a minute, not just take a snapshot of people to judge them yeah there are some scandals early on in his presidency with the post office but they're sort of inherited there's a lot of corruption in the post office and 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 the congressional investigations and all that and i think the congressional investigations stop when they like start to include senators and members of congress (laughs) who would would recommend crooks and stuff like that all of a sudden everything stops those post office jobs were great. And that was where McKinley put in a lot of the freedmen. Well, by then they weren't the freedmen mostly anymore, but a lot of African-Americans. That's where they started to get their start in government jobs and getting some of that. Oh, in the South. Uh, there's a famous case where Roosevelt tries to appoint a black woman as postmistress in Mississippi. And there's all this, you know, pushback in Mississippi and including probably from white Repub- the lily white Republicans. And it's it's so bad that what Roosevelt says, okay, I'll withdraw the nomination, and I'm going to close that post office, and you can <laughs> you can walk job. 20 miles to pick up your <laughs> damn mail. <laughs> Very Roosevelt way to solve it. Yeah, he would have walked it. He'd made him run it double <laughs> right. time, right? When he gets all those army officers out there. Oh, the police, the yeah, police officers, make them run. Yeah. yeah, get your asses and uh, out there and be able to run, be able to do some physical things. That's one officer that he brings in, Otto Raphael, Jewish man from Brooklyn, and he saves a runaway carriage, which they called a scorcher in those days, the Gilded Age. And he ran up beside the horse, rode his horse up, saved this family, a woman, a husband, and some children, I believe. TR hears about him, calls him in his office and says, you're the kind of man we need to be on the NYPD. And the guy had no real interest in that, but they develop a friendship all those years that folks want to look up Otto Raphael. You know, he, he respected that and he liked that. And so, yeah, his autobiography has a lot of these strange detours of 
guys he like met on the street when he was in New York City. I mean, not what you would expect. Yeah. Well, we've taken a few strange detours, but I could talk about TR all day. I think as does TR's last war, we've kept people interested, but we've reached the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, so to speak. So I wanted to close, but give you a chance to make one final pitch. We see a Theodore Roosevelt in TR's last war where he's 60 years old. He's no longer that dashing rough rider. He's no longer the boxer at Harvard. He's a favorite subject of so many people. He's an inspiring historical figure, warts and all, as we see him in this frustrated period of his life. What do you hope readers will take from seeing him in TR's last war as they look at him and they judge, maybe they have a little bust like this on their table or a magazine cover of TR. What do you hope they will take and have a fuller picture once they finish? Well, there's there's even more pieces of glass in the kaleidoscope, <laughs> okay? And some of those are, you know, not admirable. A lot of them are. He's tremendously energetic and personally brave and willing to carry things to their logical conclusions. But he has his his flaws. He has his weaknesses. He battles towards the end, as he battles in the beginning. You know, the story, you know, you bookend the story, you bookend the novel or the piece of music. And here we bookend where he comes in with such bad health, and then he's Superman for so long physically, and then it all catches up to him. And he says, you mentioned 60 years old. He says to his, his sister, you know, I promised, I promised uh, that I would, I'm, to myself, I would live to the fullest until I was 60. And Use then me after up. that, um, and that's, that was basically it in the last year of his life. He spends maybe two and a half months in the hospital, in Roosevelt Hospital in New York's West Side with all sorts of things. He loses his hearing in his left, uh, I think his left ear. Uh, and, and that destroys his balance, his equilibrium. If you take a look at the cover of the book, one of the things, if you will see newsreels of TR, is he will be smashing his fist into his palm as he's speaking all the time. That's a classic TR move, okay? And in the cover of this book, you see him on September 30th, 1918, in Columbus, Ohio, and he's holding on to the platform with one hand and holding on to a stanchion, holding up a, a sort of over a roof overhead with the other because he's probably having trouble standing up. OK, on the other hand, he is capable of great bursts of of, again, physical prowess. There's a story just before he goes to Wood see Woodrow Wilson in 1917 where he goes down to Florida and I reprinted the entire amount from his companion. And he's going out to Florida to hunt devilfish. And he's like Captain Ahab. And he <laughs> has no experience in this. He's, he's, he has no experience. He's, he goes out on Long Island Sound and throws a harpoon around a few times. <laughs> and he goes down to Florida with the great marine hunter of the time, who, by the way, looks exactly like William Howard Taft. It's kind of weird, okay? <laughs> First off, the fact that anyone who looks like William Howard Taft could be the, <laughs> one of the greatest marine hunters of his time, okay? But T.R. goes out, and he's harpooning this this creature and there's blood all over the place all over the ocean and they're hauling it in and it's like 
you know, there's still fight left in TR as as late as as 1917. But by 1918, he's a mess, and he goes into the hospital in on Armistice Day and does not come out until Christmas Eve. And there's not that much left of him physically, emotionally. Maybe the fight is over. He when he loses Quentin, they say that the boy went out of him, that a lot of the life went out of him, which is perfectly normal, perfectly rational. But he goes to bed in January 5th, 1919, on the verge of being elected president. I I think that people, because he was so indestructible, you know, you could go down the Amazon and survive jungle fever. You could shoot him and he'd keep talking for an hour and a half. It's like, do we have to shoot him again to make him stop? <laughs> You know, that this guy's indestructible, and he obviously wasn't, but they couldn't see it. With with few exceptions, they couldn't realize that this guy was, was literally on his last legs. When he comes out of Roosevelt Hospital on Christmas Eve, 1918, he's been warned he may have to spend the rest of his life in, in a wheelchair. And he says, well, I can do that. I can carry on the fight. But maybe he came to the conclusion that, that he could not. It's hard to imagine a, a Roosevelt being elected to the presidency in a wheelchair, isn't it? Yeah, anyway. <laughs> he fights really just about to the end that way, but it is a tremendously eventful and controversial and titanic life. Well, David Petrusha, you just mentioned about TR speaking with a bullet in him for an hour and a half. And I think that's probably how long this will be when we finish it, which is... Are you going to shoot me now? <laughs> that's the only way to stop you from talking about TR. But I wouldn't do that because I want to hear more about TR. I want to... Oh, I haven't scratched the surface. <laughs> I know you We haven't. didn't even talk about John W. McGrath. There's so much in the book. And for me, as somebody who's read two dozen books, and that's not me bragging. It's just that I'm interested in him and I read a lot. I love when I pick up a new book and there's new things to learn about somebody that I thought I knew because I hesitate a little bit to pick up a book about a subject I've touched before. Because for one thing, sometimes you'll get a book by somebody who doesn't know the subject matter that well. Certainly not the case in TR's Last War. You not only know him, but you are it's as if you've known TR longer than I have. And of course, you've done a more in-depth job. That's what I look for in a history book. Yet it is great storytelling and people can pick it up if they've never read a book about TR before and meet him for the first time, meet him at a point in his life that most people, if you meet somebody who's into TR or thinks they are, as Tweed Roosevelt said, he meets people and they'll always say, I bet you don't know this story. And they'll tell me a story I've heard 10 times before. And I'll nod politely and say, okay, well, that's very nice of you. But you know, it's great to hear. I love that story because that's how TR is alive to people. But here you can meet him in a whole new way, learn new stories. I was laughing throughout this interview, which I hope people didn't find distracting, but this is a fun book, even though it is about war, even though there's tragedy and triumph, as it says there in the subhead for Theodore Roosevelt and his family. One of my favorite subjects, one of my favorite historical figures, and now one of my favorite historians and guests. I really appreciate you spending the time with me today. Meeting up in person is very nice. It's nice to be able to look at the person that you're interviewing. I wish you the best of luck with TR's Last War. It's Bully. Thank you. <laughs> Again, the book is TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and a Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. As always, 
You can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate via the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. A big thank you to David Petrusia for meeting up with me in the city of Theodore Roosevelt's birth and for sharing the story of TR's role in World War I. An ocean away and 20 years after, his romantic charge up San Juan Heights in Cuba. Visit our guest at davidpetrusia.com or at dpetrusia on Twitter. That last name again is spelled P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, on our Instagram page, or at facebook.com slash history author. If you're interested in the Roosevelts, I recommend two chats in our archives. One is Tim Brady's book, His Father's Son, The Life of General Ted Roosevelt Jr., and John J. Miller's The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football. You can also enjoy my chat with Kermit Roosevelt III, TR's great-great-grandson, on his novel about FDR's internment of ethnic Japanese during the Second World War. And we have one coming up that talks more about America's involvement in the Great War, including a view of TR from a young man who went and visited him at his office and was all set to enlist in that Rough Rider regiment if TR had managed to get permission from Wilson to set it up. That book is called An American on the Western Front, the First World War Letters of Arthur Clifford Kimber. You can look for that interview to upload on November 5th of 2018. And if that date's already passed, lucky you. You can go right to historyauthor.com, our iHeartRadio channel, iTunes, or anywhere else you find us, and enjoy that chat right now. Well, that's it for this bully installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Standing alone, I saw Georgie Corn Somewhere on Long Acre Square Crowds passed him by, I heard Georgie sigh Nobody noticed him there I asked him why he didn't smile He said in that old Cohen style Oh, New York ain't New York anymore How I miss those old pals of mine The sawdust is gone from the floor Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline On the east side, west side Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore I remember, he said, when 
I first hit Broadway, New York was New York and the white way was gay. There were Sherry's and Murray's and Rector's, you know, the Claridge and Churchill's and Delmonico's. Music and laughter, and the prices were right. A ten-dollar bill meant a wonderful night. And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared when the newsboys yelled extra. War is declared. But the hand that held glasses of wine in the air were the first to hold guns when I rode over there. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to meet. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. There I go laughing again. That's how much fun it was.